Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you on this Thanksgiving week as we wrap up our series. We've been asking the question, is this going anywhere for the last several months now? Trying to think about the story of the Bible and and where is it going? But where are we going in it? Tonight we're coming to the ending and unlike the things we've been looking at up to this point, this is all about the future. We've been talking about what went wrong at the beginning where the grand arching narrative of the Bible went as God called together his people and gave them his law and then worked with them to prepare for the time that the Messiah would come. Last week we looked at, at what it means to, to be those who are part of the church and we saw some of how that ties in and how we, we live as those who are in the kingdom. But tonight we're going to think about where are we going? Where are you as we, we come into this Thanksgiving week? We we think and and hopefully if we peer into our lives, we can see the places we should be thankful because every breath that we have is a, a gift from God. And yet there's also all the things that we carry that feel heavy and burdensome that we're, we're, we're confused how to make sense of. What we find at the end of scripture is that God is aware of these things. He, he knows even as he, he works in our lives, even as we read the, the promises being fulfilled that we're still carrying griefs and challenges and troubles and that that's not reason to give up. Rather, he is with us and he's going to make all things right. I was reading yesterday the story of Fred Brooks. Fred Brooks was a famed computer scientist who passed away this past week. And he was involved in all kinds of different projects at IBM most notably the System 360, which is one of the great legendary mainframes of the early computing era. And it was notable for being innovative in the way it approached the design of the system and the software and how it all came together and how it, it worked unlike previous systems in a very broad way that applied to all kinds of different needs, much like computers today do. Well, before he designed that system, that that really, really notable system, Fred Brooks was involved with another system that was supposed to be really innovative at IBM, and it came crashing down. The the whole plan didn't result in anything useful. And so when that project clearly had reached a point of failure, Brooks went to Watson, the, the famed CEO of IBM, and turned in his resignation. He said, you know, I'm a failure, I should leave. And by most accounts, that's generally how such a a moment in a project manager's life would be viewed. If you've guided a project, an incredibly expensive project, to failure, it's probably time to resign. But I love what, what Thomas Watson said to Fred Brooks. He said, I've just spent a billion dollars educating you. I'm not letting you go now. He looked at Brooks and, and the failures and realized that Brooks was a talented man who had gifts that for, for this work and that IBM had provided him with resources to use those gifts. And the last thing he wanted when it come into failure was to see him leave. And rather, he put him on the project, the System 360, that became a huge success for IBM. And he was able to take what he had learned before and apply it. And then at some point he did leave IBM, but not because of his failures, but rather he felt led to teach a new generation. He, in fact, felt called by God to do so. One of the neat things about Brooks's life is he was an outspoken evangelical Christian. He believed that God was guiding his life. And so as he saw this opportunity that had come to fruition, he wanted to be able to pass it along and help others. He he saw a trajectory, but he lost sight of that before that. He'd, He'd seen only his failure and assumed he should just step aside. 
How often do we reach those points? Those points where we lose hope and, and we think, well, I should just try to cut my losses and quit hoping. Maybe I should just walk away. And what we find in Revelation, sometimes we get just completely enmeshed in all the different things going on and the, the fascinating symbolism. And, and either we're so busy trying to figure out exactly what place it applies in our current part of, of, of world history and politics, or, or we get so confused by it, we just walk away and we miss the beauty of it, which is God is saying to us in those moments where we think that we've just reached a failure. I put more than a billion dollars into you. I put the very love that I have. I, I've, I've sent my only son into this world so that you can be part of my family. Yes, it feels like failure in the moment, but I'm not done yet with you. I'm going to use you. And that's what we find in Revelation. It may not be what we normally look for in Revelation, but I believe that's actually core to what we find in Revelation, that God wins and he calls his family, his adopted sons and daughters, into that victory. So let's go ahead and turn to Revelation 18. And as we turn to Revelation 18, we're we're coming towards the end. And, and we've seen chapters before that where those who oppose God rise up. They seem to be all-powerful. Everything seems to be going in their direction. And in fact, those who follow the Lord are being martyred like crazy. But we turn to chapter 18 and we see that won't last. Take a look at verse 21. It says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of a mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. So think about this list here. And it seems like this is just a long list of things. Why are, why are these things not going to be found here no, anymore? And... I want to say no more. We have all these no mores. Uh, and they will be found there no more. Uh, but why those things? And why do we even care what will be no more in Babylon? You might say, well, Babylon? Babylon's a bunch of ruins anymore. It's out in the desert. Why would I care about that? And and we need to understand that Babylon here symbolizes worldly power opposed to God. And different interpreters of Revelation are going to disagree on exactly how that plays out. And I don't want us to get bogged down there tonight. What I want us to think about is here is the worldly power that opposes God. And then we have a list of the things that will no longer be in it. And let's just go back and look at verses 22 and 23 again. Listen to these no mores. And the sound of the harpist and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Think about the different things we see broken down here. We see back in verse 22 to start that one of the things that will be found no more are the different arts. 
the harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeteers. And, and some people have used that to say, well, music is evil or musicians are evil or instruments are evil. And that's missing the point because the Bible has lots of examples of musical instruments being used. It's, it's not about the instruments or the ability to play them being evil. Rather, they were used for, for this worldly power and for building up. And we're told that will end. But not just the arts, but also just everyday commerce. As we go further down into the verse 22, we're told, for example, and, and a craftsman of any craft will be found no more in this worldly power, this representation of the world opposing God. And, and it goes on. So now we've, we've taken away the arts and we've taken away business, but, but God wants to say this is a complete end because even things that happen, just normal everyday home life will go away. Notice the sound of a mill, the, the millstone grinding wheat that people would have done. We don't do that at home generally anymore, but it would have been very common in the time that you, you're preparing your own, you're milling your own flour and so on. And so those normal preparations to eat will be no more. The shining of a lamp, lighting up a home at night, that's not going to happen any longer. People getting married, bridegroom and bride, that, that will no longer be heard. The merchants, we're told, there's back to commerce again, those will go away. Everything will go away. And what we're told here is that God is going to defeat those who oppose him. When, when we, as the people of God, are following him, and yet we're feeling like those who oppose God are triumphing, we're told here that it's going to come to an end. That, that while those people seem to prosper, whether they're artists or craftsmen or, or merchants or whatever they might be, whether they have luxuries of a, of a well-lit home, whether they have plenty of food or not, whatever might be happening, whatever they might be going about their life and things seem to be going well, all that's going to come to an end. The opposition to God in all its forms will come to an end. What does this tell us? Okay, it ends. But it's a message to us, those who follow the Lord, that the suffering isn't okay, that, that it's not that God is completely oblivious. He's not the sort of God that wound up the universe and walked away and doesn't care what happens. Rather, those who oppose him, while they may seem to be prospering in the moment, if we read all the way through Revelation, it seems like the city of Babylon is greatly prospering. It'll be transitory. It'll be for a time. And then it'll be completely shut down. And we can see that over and over again in history. The greatest powers of the world fail. But ultimately, even let's not even think about one singular power. Let's think about all the powers of the world that oppose God. All of them will eventually fail. And, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about their, their creative output, their commercial output, their ability to provide what seems like a quality of life to the people in them. All these things will end. And if that's so, then God is saying that those of us who, who seek to follow him, when we're being faithful to him and it feels like things are, are going poorly because of that, that suffering isn't okay. We don't have to say, well, I, I guess that's just the lot of, of my life is to suffer. We may suffer for a time. We may suffer quite a bit in life, but we're called to be people of expectation that God is going to make things right. We have to keep our eye on where God is going, not just where things are in the moment. The last few weeks, we've heard a lot about FTX, a uh, cryptocurrency exchange that is in deep, deep financial trouble. And, and not only is it in deep financial trouble, but a lot of other companies related to it are in financial trouble. And no wonder that it's kind of hard to sort out because cryptocurrency is 
sometimes a bit on the confusing side, we might say. A little bit of an understatement there. It's a very overwhelming and untested water. There's lots of things we don't really fully understand about how this is going to work out. And many of us are just trying to get our heads around how it works at all. And so it's no wonder then that when something goes terribly wrong and, and money's been misused, that it might cause a huge disruption. What, what have we seen from that? What is the reason why anyone cares about that that hasn't invested in cryptocurrency? And if you haven't, you might be saying, well, I, I just try to buzz by that. But, but the reason it's been making all these headlines is that people are genuinely concerned. How's it going to ripple out into the overall economy? How's it going to affect other stocks? And then how's it going to affect my retirement? Or how's it going to affect this? Or how's it going to affect that? Is it going to reduce the amount of buying power people have in my shops going to close? All kinds of things play out from that. And generally, these sorts of occurrences, whether it is this FTX collapse or some of the collapses we saw back in 2008 or any number of others over history, one of the things that often makes it far worse is that those who are sort of nearby to it but not in it panic and think, well, if this is failing, maybe what I own is going to fail too. And so what we've seen over the last few weeks is that cryptocurrencies have dropped precipitously because people say, well, if this failed, then maybe what I've invested in in the crypto industry is going to fail too. And so they go and they sell that off. And then regular stocks start responding because some of them were invested partially into cryptocurrency and they start to go down. And that affects the futures of companies and people start to wonder if they should invest in them at all. And then companies start to wonder whether they should hire people at all. And it just ripples out and out and out. And, and in fact, maybe if people kept their eye on the Price and where things are going, a lot of this wouldn't happen. This one company would sink, but but everything else could keep moving along because there's an awful lot of things being affected now that really had no direct impact from FTX failing. It's, it's all about people panicking. They hear about bad news and they run. In life, we hear about the bad news in life and often we run. Sometimes we run away from God entirely. We say, we see these people who are Christians and it's not going well for them. I just want to get out of this investment because God's kingdom doesn't seem to be paying off. Sometimes it's not maybe that direct. We want to hold on to God still, but we say, I don't know if God's going to, to bring about anything good. So I'm just going to kind of hunker down and try to survive. And everything we've been talking about the last weeks about expanding God's kingdom is not going to work anyway. It's clear the world is just getting worse and worse and people don't want to hear about God. And so I, 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 I'm just going to try to protect myself because nothing good is going to come. But what are we being told here? We're being told that we should live with expectation that God's victory will come. And investors generally, we know this from all kinds of times in the past in history, do far better with, when, when there's all this panic going on when they actually keep their investment. Now, not if they're in the invested in the actual thing that's going bankrupt, but when they're invested in something else and they get panicky because they look at this thing that has gone bankrupt and they say, well, I'm just going to get out of everything. That doesn't go well for them. But those that stay in end up seeing as things sort of recover and start to improve and they get to be, be a part of that. As Christians, we're called to, to think about where we're putting the investment of our lives. Are we going to put it into God and his kingdom? Even when it seems like all the surrounding stuff is collapsing and we don't really understand it any more than we understand cryptocurrency and it's just confusing and we think, well, maybe I should just get out. Are we going to live with the expectation that it will go back up? Are we going to run? Are we going to hunker down? What are we going to do? What are we going to do as individuals? What are we going to do as the church? certainly a challenge to us as Little Hills and as the broader body of Christ. What are we going to do? Are we going to live as people of expectation? Because people of expectation 
go and keep investing in the kingdom because we know that God is working and it may not look like things are going great right now, but we'll go ahead and buy low because we know that we won't even have to sell. God is going to reach total victory and we'll just be in it. We don't have to know when to sell. God has that under control. We just need to participate in it. That's what his calling to us is. And, and and yet we might say, well, but I'm losing so much in life in this moment. There's so much suffering. And it seems like it'd be easier if I weren't being kingdom minded, if I just walked away from the kingdom, or at least I went into that hunkered down mentality. But the other thing we're told is not only will God have victory and will all the, the suffering, and not only will those who seem to prosper by opposing God come to their end. And clearly that's here. And clearly that's calling us not to, to invest in the world, but into God. But, but when we do turn to the Lord instead, that suffering will pale in comparison to what God has in store for his people. Take a look. If we turn now to chapter 19, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the, roaring, the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made, re- made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So on the one hand, we see a city in collapse and and we're told that's what's going to come of those who oppose God. That's what's going to come of those who decide, I'm going to flee investing in the kingdom of God. I'm going to invest in the kingdom of the world instead because it looks safer. It looks like it has a better payoff. It looks like it won't at least be running against the, the current. I'll at least be going with everybody else and it'll be easier. We're told that there's going to be rejoicing when we do that. And we see these these comparisons here. On the one hand, we, we saw the end of the bride and the bridegroom in the, in the city that opposed God. Now we see the ultimate marriage ceremony, the, the one where Jesus takes his church as his bride. And we, we see that made explicit as, as John says that, that the linen that was adorning the bride were the righteous deeds of the saints. That is, God uses us and, and we do what's pleasing to him. That That's the beautiful garment by which we are all presented to him at the end of time. So blessed is he who who isn't part of that city that's being destroyed, but rather is at the wedding that is going to happen when all those weddings and and normal day-to-day life things of the evil city are are ended. Blessed is he who is a part of what is to come, what God's going to do. We're told in that that we should rejoice and be glad. And and, and that phrasing, those two words being stuck together, rejoicing and being glad, they don't occur a whole lot in the New Testament. They do occur throughout Scripture in different places. We see it a little bit more in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, there are really only two other instances. And let's take a look at those for a moment because they give us a picture of how this rejoicing at the end of time relates to what we're doing right now. In Matthew 5, which we've been looking at on Sunday nights at Little Hills, at the end of the Beatitudes, in fact, Jesus says, Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And here's that phrase, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Later on in First Peter, Peter reflects 
and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, be, may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why do, why do God's people rejoice and why should they be glad, be glad in suffering, be, be glad in persecution? Well, Peter says, because his glory is coming, things will be made right. And that's what we see in Revelation 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall they, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. God is going to be with us. Why do we rejoice and why are we glad in the persecution as Jesus and Peter both call us to in the New Testament? Why do we do that? Because we know what's coming. It's not all lost. I think sometimes that's hard for us to get our heads around because in life so often it feels like we reach a point in something and it's all lost. I've always found it sort of hauntingly interesting reading the story of Times Beach. And if you're familiar with it, uh, you know exactly what I'm referring to. If not, it, just briefly, it, it was this little community that had been built by a newspaper of all things in St. Louis, uh, the Times, which had tried to gain extra readers by offering a plot of land they bought that named after themselves, Times Beach, uh, cheap vacation homes right alongside the river. It was a nice place to, to go on the weekend was the idea. And, and over time, they, they sold these plots at a deep discount if you subscribe to the paper and, and people bought them and eventually became a little city. And, and people lived there not far from St. Louis, just 30 minutes or so from downtown. And, and it was a seemingly not wealthy place, but a nice place. But it had dirt roads and they hired a man by the name of Russell Bliss to, to come in and put oil down on the roads, waste oil to hold down the, the dust so it'd be a nicer place. What they didn't know is that Bliss had been collecting contaminated oil and cleaning out contaminated containers that had dioxin, one of the elements related to Agent Orange, and that was in the mix as he sprayed it down on the roads. They didn't know anything was wrong until people started getting sick in the town. But what really happened is the investigation was just gearing up. They were just starting to look into this and try to figure out why more and more people were getting sick. A flood came. The Merrimack River flooded and, and washed the material on the roads all over the town. And by the time the flood was, was, was back down, the waters had receded, they realized that not only had the roads been contaminated, but the waters had spread this contaminated material on the roads so thoroughly in the town that the EPA ended up saying that the only thing to do was to completely raise the town. Everything had to be destroyed. Nothing could be salvaged. You couldn't just go back and rebuild your house. It was so bad they even tore down the water tower and had to incinerate that because everything was covered with this, this horrible toxic chemical dioxin. It couldn't be salvaged. It simply had to be eliminated. And so it was purged. And now there's a park there. You can go there. Uh, that sounds exciting. It doesn't go out and, and enjoy the nice 
outdoors in this place that had this horrible toxic chemical, but allegedly it's all nice and clean now, but everything that was there, everything's been wiped away. Everything that meant something to people for decades and decades is just gone. Had to be eliminated to eliminate that chemical. And we look at different parts of our life and we've probably all had projects we've been involved in. We've probably all had jobs that we've been involved in. We've probably had all kinds of things where it feels like you get to that point and everything's just contaminated. The floodwaters picked up whatever contaminant was in part of it and just spread it out. And the only thing to do is to walk away. Sometimes maybe we feel like our whole life's that way. And, and the question is, what are we going to do? Do we believe that our lives and the things that are going on in them are so contaminated that there isn't a possibility of getting to a point where everything that's gone wrong can be made right, be made more than right like Revelation describes? Maybe God has let the toxin of sin spread too far in our lives. He didn't realize how those floodwaters were going to just spread it all over us and we're just going to die. I think those sort of thoughts run run through our heads. What What are you facing right now? What am I facing right now? What... What am I looking at? What are you looking at that it feels like God can't fix this? And even if he puts an end to it, there's still so much already done that can't ever be made right. What are those places for us? Because what Revelation is telling us here is that Jesus is going to take those things and do something so much better. As we see this establishment of God's new Jerusalem, that, that old city that's cast away and everything that was functioning in it that's been shut down, we see the restoration of that in this new city. We see, in other words, human life being brought back in this new city, but made right. Back to how we were meant to be. That's how Revelation leaves us. If we turn to Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the city, the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we see what's being described here, we're meant to think back to where we started this series back in September. We we were looking at Genesis back then. And when we were in Genesis, what were we doing? We were we were looking at the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And if you remember, our, our starting point was it was good. God made it and it was good. He, he made human beings and placed them in the garden and it was good. And yet we start to lose sight of how good it was because things were so incredibly broken after that. And when we imagine the future, we often imagine a future that doesn't look anything like what God originally made us for. We we imagine a future where we're floating on clouds, playing harps, and, and it feels so alien, and rightly so, because it is alien to who it is that we are. The, those pop culture pictures of of a future life after death don't look like what God made human beings for. But Revelation doesn't take us there. When we think about what's being described here, this beautiful garden with a tree right in the middle of the city and the interconnected nature of, of God with his creation that we see here is a picture of Genesis, if anything, made better, not different. 
Because you see, what God made was, was good. He knew what he was talking about, that it was good. But when we come to the end of Revelation, what we're being told is that God's going to take that goodness, that, that stuff that goes beyond anything that you and I can imagine as those who've never lived through it. Take all that goodness, and he's going to bring his whole creation, all of his people that follow him, into it. Be right there with us, not just dwelling with Adam and Eve and walking with them in the cool of the night in the garden, but, but with all of us. And when it says that night will be no more, in other words, all the things that hide in the dark, all the negative things, all the, the ways we've been talking about light and darkness on Sunday nights and, and the way that darkness obscures goodness, all that's going to pass. We're just going to be with God. We have to remember is that when we look at our creation now, our existence, our lives, our purpose, the, the purpose of the world all around us, these things often seem very broken right now, but God is going to overcome all that brokenness and usher us into his presence. And usher us into a presence, not that's totally different, but rather right. Reminds me of how my grandpa used to restore antiques, and it, it, it's sort of amazing to me how he could do it. He'd see something broken. He'd see something all dirty and soiled, a piece of furniture or something, and he could see it and see what it could be again, how it could be restored. Most people would walk by it. That was part of what made him so good at it. He could find things that people wouldn't think were of value and realize they could be made good and valuable again. Well, when we look at the world today, when we look at our lives today, so often we look at them and think, what value is there? How could it possibly be good, especially if it's not totally different than what we have now? And yet God sees his creation as it was meant to be and will be. And while my grandpa could restore many things, he couldn't make everything right back to where it was. And, and yet God will. God will make everything truly right. Is this going anywhere? Is my life going anywhere? Is your life going anywhere? Is this world going anywhere? Is the story of scripture going anywhere? Oh, yes, it is. It's a truly beautiful, wonderful place. When we think about this interconnected story we've seen throughout the, the last few weeks as we've been going through the entirety of Scripture, thinking about how it's interconnected and seeing how our lives tie into that story, what it's telling us is that, is our life going anywhere? Is yours? Is mine? Yes. All we need to do is trust in Jesus and trust that the master craftsman will restore. And that's your hope and it's my hope. And if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, may this be the day that you do trust in him because he can take everything, the deepest contamination, the worst sin that has spread through the floodwaters over our lives, and he will take it out. He will make everything good. Is this going anywhere? It very much is. It's going right into the goodness of God's presence. Would you pray with me, please? Father, a lot of times we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand why things are broken, why things seem to always implode or explode. We look at our own lives and we wonder, where are we going? Are we going anywhere? Can we go anywhere? Are we too hopeless to go anywhere? And yet you say to us that you see us as valuable sons and daughters, those whom you want in your kingdom. Would you help us to trust in you? As we trust in you to see what you see, and when it's obscured and we can't see it, to, to trust, to believe that even when we can't see what you're going to do and how things will be made right, that you will triumph and make things right. Lord, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Well, I do hope that this has been an encouragement to you. And, and if it has, please consider giving this a like or a share. I think many people are coming into this holiday season asking, is this going anywhere? Can God restore my life? Can he wipe away the toxins? Or, or is that, that Times Beach scenario just completely me? I am just needing to be incinerated. Well, we know from Scripture that God can overcome anything that's in your life and anything in the lives of those you might share this with. So please do share it. And then please also join us for everything that's coming up over this Advent season. We're going to actually be addressing that and thinking about it more at our Blue Christmas service. We also have a bunch more stuff going on at Christmas. I don't have time to talk about it all just now, so I'm inviting you, please do check out littlehills.church slash Christmas. And we have our blue Christmas service coming up on December 2nd, our carols on December 9th, our Christmas Eve service, all this stuff coming up. And you can read about it on there, invite people to it on there. And I really do believe if you know anyone struggling with the things we've been talking about tonight, invite them specifically to come to that blue Christmas service. It's a great place to start. But we'll also be starting two brand new sermon series, one on Sunday night and Monday night. Sunday nights, we're looking at foretold, that's with the number four, looking at the four Gospels and, and how they tell us about the story of Christmas. And that's going to be over the course of Advent on Sunday nights. Then on Monday nights, we're going to have foretold, F-O-R-E told, and we're going to be looking at how God foretold what came about in the Christmas story in the prophecies we find in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament, thinking about how none of this is accidental, because as we see how intentional and how much is a fulfillment of promise that the Christmas story happens at all, we're reminded all the more that God's victory is something that we can count on. Also, as we are coming to the end of the year, some of you have asked about being able to give a pledge for next year at Little Hills. And if you're interested in pledging your support, you can go ahead and go to littlehills.church slash pledge and offer your pledge today. It's, it's not obligatory. If, if you don't want to do it at all, you don't have to. If you give if a number there and find out you can't fulfill that pledge, God understands, we understand, things change. But it is a way to kind of let us think about the next year and what we can do with the resources that God's providing. So please do consider taking part in our pledge drive. Do also please invite, invite, invite. As we come up to all these things, you are the best way to bring more people into the hope of the gospel by just sharing with the people that God's put into your life. Please do invite, once again, littlehills.church slash Christmas. I can't wait to go through that whole season with you. If there's any way I can be praying for you in the meantime, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment in the comments below. I love hearing from you and I can't wait to. In the meantime, I hope you have a blessed week, a joyful Thanksgiving, and I'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you.